Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'm J.R. Lowry. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Rahini Day, whom I met when we both worked at McKinsey 20-odd years ago. Rahini is the founder and owner of Vermilion, an Indian-Latin fusion restaurant in Chicago and the past owner of Vermilion, New York. She's also the founder of Let's Talk Women, an organization that is now connecting over 600 people, women restaurateurs across 13 cities to support each other's businesses, collaboratively battle the pandemic. She has prior McKinsey experience, as I mentioned, and is also a former World Bank economist. She was on the board of the James Beard Foundation for a decade, where she co-founded and has chaired the James Beard Foundation Women's Leadership Program since 2011. She's been lauded as one of the top 50 leaders in the restaurant industry and named Time Out Women of the Year for founding Let's Talk. She writes op-eds and speaks on policy, business, and women's parity. She's been featured in a number of publications, many of which you would know. She's a frequent judge on the Food Network, and her restaurants have mentored and launched chefs on Chop, Iron Chef, and Top Chef who have gone on to own their own businesses. Rahini earned her undergraduate and master's degrees in Delhi and her PhD from the University of Texas. In sum, she straddles the worlds of business and philanthropy across the U.S. and India. She is a fierce proponent for women. She's earned a number of awards and accolades over the years. She is also a mother of two, a marathoner, a triathlete, and she and her husband successfully climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for her 40th birthday. So, Rohini, you put everybody to shame. I abbreviated that version <laughs> relative to your many accomplishments. Yeah, that was an excruciating long rendition. I think we've got to work on your summaries. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, let's dive in. So the story goes that when you were a child, around the age of 12, you set your sights on working at McKinsey in the World Bank. Is that really true or is that just media not uh, McKinsey. I don't know where you got McKinsey into it, but the World Bank for sure. Okay. You know, my school, this was in the eighth grade, was in Delhi. And opposite to this, our school were the swank buildings of the UN and the World Bank. Okay. And these were like whole different universes, all cordoned off. So I do vividly remember going there as maybe 13-year-old in my uniform and stepping into the air-conditioned, dustless aura of their reception <laughs> and literally asking the receptionist, I want to get a job here. How do I get a job with you guys? <laughs> and they laughed at me, said, go get a PhD, come back. And so that's exactly what I did. Yeah, you did, eventually. Yes, that part of it is true. Oh, that's amazing that you had set your sights on that so early in your life. So you got your undergraduate and master's degrees in economics, and then you went to the University of Texas, as I mentioned. How did you come to choose the University of Texas to do your doctoral work? 
So this was before the internet days. I had really very little research wherewithal, you know. There yeah. was this ancient outpost of the US called USIS and they had old decrepit catalogs of universities lying there. I was like throwing a dartboard. I remember going and getting my applications typewritten. <laughs> this is dating myself. <laughs> But and sending it out and whoever gave me a full ride and full scholarship for a PhD was the one I went with and this was it. All right. Fair enough. Money does matter when you're considering those things. I was going to ask you how long it took you to get your PhD done. A total of seven years, but with wow. a two-year leave of absence to go work at the World Bank in between and okay. publish. So okay. five years if you net that out. When you left the World Bank, or when you left the University of Texas and you had your PhD, did you go back to the World Bank, or is that when you went to McKinsey? That was the segue to McKinsey. Just going back to the World Bank for a minute, what was it like there? You'd wanted since you were like 13 years old yeah. to work at the World Bank. Did it live up to the hype? So I was based in D.C. and I was very fortunate that I actually got to work on missions that I cared about. This was the era of Glasnost and Perestroika and right. state-owned enterprises were being unbundled and privatized. So I was working in infrastructure privatization. I did missions to South America. Loved it. In the glamorous world of water, sewage, post and telecom. So, but learned hell of a lot. Ultimately, the pace of, I'm trying to look for a euphemistic way to say this, but the pace of work and the learning curve really didn't live up to what I was aspiring for. That being said, a lot of good work is done. And I think I realized that I needed to hone my learning skills elsewhere. Even so, are there things that you took away that have stayed with you since then? I'm very passionate about development policy and politics and economics. And that is really my first love. I read about it passionately. And who knows, maybe a fifth career is in store for me. Maybe another career is in store for you. Exactly. So then you did go to McKinsey. Why did you choose McKinsey? The easy answer is because my husband was there. At that point, my fiancé. But a longer answer is also, even when I was at the World Bank, whenever it was a challenging issue or analytical or deep problem solving was involved, it was outsourced to consulting. That was my first exposure to consulting. And yeah. so that drew me. And the fact, the whole aura around how impossible it is to get into and just the elusiveness of it was a challenge. So I thought, let me throw my hat in the ring. Always have backup options. Academia was my third last option. Did not want to go there. Mm. World Bank was always a place I could go to. And this I wanted to try. Did you pursue certain types of projects that sort of carried on that development theme that you'd had at the World Bank? Or did you just do like completely different things when you were at McKinsey? I completely mismanaged my career at McKinsey. I, <laughs> I did a shotgun approach to every project I did was a new team, new industry, and new client. So every project was an incredibly uphill learning curve, no relationships to build upon, yeah. very hard way to go. Flip side of looking at it is I learned so much from anything in specialty chemicals, dog food, virtual insurance, banking, asset management, the gamut, you know how it is. Yeah. I did a really broad variety of things when I was there, particularly even to a degree after I became a partner which is a little bit uncommon. I probably, though, suffered from being too much of a jack of all trades in the end. Yeah, so yeah. you left McKinsey and you went off and did what could only be viewed as a pretty significant career change, diving into the restaurant world. So what was it that led you into the restaurant world from the World Bank and McKinsey? 
So think two decades ago, this was the era when Food Network was booming, just about gotten started. I feel like it's still booming. Yes. Not only that, but it's proliferated across every other channel as well, right? From CNN to Bravo to whoever, everybody's doing shows around food or the world of food or the business of food, even CNBC, like you mentioned. My background in India was across 12 different cities. My father was in the Air Force. I've eaten my way through the country and I'm overtly biased about Indian cuisine. And this was the time when Nobu had transformed the perception of Japanese in the US. And I'd seen Indian booming in parts of the world that are much more exposed to the Indian culture for obvious reasons, whether it's South Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, or whether it's London with its ties. And it's done well. Here, Mm. it was appalling. It was primarily the whole India Garden, Jaipur Palace genre. And I, I, in my modesty, set about to change that. Yeah. You've talked in the past about having these glamorous visions of hanging out at the bar and entertaining celebrities. but You've said the reality couldn't have been more different. In those early days, what was it about the restaurant business that most surprised you? So I approached it as a classical McKinsey consultant would. I met with 30, 40 different managers. I got, did all my due diligence, got all my information outside in, but it's a notoriously secretive industry. It's small business. What you see is not what is declared. I even went and lived with the restaurateur for a week and shadowed him inside out to figure out the financial viability of this. I was throwing away a lucrative career to jump into entrepreneurs, which I never had, and to jump into an industry which I knew nothing about other than dining out and expensing, right? Yeah. Once I was convinced, that took me a good two months of due diligence. Then I spent a year getting it off the ground. And here, too, I made myself work plans and deliverables and got help where I needed consulting for the whole hiring the team, setting up the kitchen, the sourcing, the permits, the marketing, the whole launch, the menu testing, hiccups along the way, learned a lot about it. But every step was learning. Yeah. Sounds like your business background, though, you put it to good use. I did, but I really missed the backup of corporates. So there's no HR, no legal, no IT, no travel. It was me doing everything. No buck stops here. No intellectual capital that you can count on to execute per se. Yeah. Any entrepreneurial venture you end up doing is taking on a lot of those roles yourself until the company at least gets to be a certain size where you can start to afford hiring people to do HR and IT and other things. You had some big name backers, including the author, Salman Rushdie. How important was that to your success? And how in particular did they help you get started, get going other than financially? Raising the money was not easy because for good reason, restaurants are like, restaurants are a 90% failure industry within five years, a notoriously fickle market. And so the funds for Chicago, I had to approach close to 80 investors to get eight to agree. And interestingly, the bulk of those landed up being McKinsey, not people I'd worked with though. So there was some internal amount of faith and that really helped. And having the success of Chicago financially, where we literally paid off investment and debt within the first two years and got a ton of press and accolades, that was entirely on our own merit based on the cuisine and the whole Indian Latin concept. I think that was the right time and we did it well. That proved to be enormously helpful. And then I'm a groupie about books and authors. So I really wanted to involve the leading Indian community when I went to New York. 
And so having the success of Chicago was very helpful. And that led to Rushdie and not only him, but a bunch of other people, including the founder of Hotmail, Sabir Bhatia, and a bunch of other people. Yeah, I've, I've seen the list mentioned in articles about your restaurants, and it's a pretty impressive list. You haven't ever acted as chef in your restaurants, but you're known to take a pretty hands-on approach pretty much across the board. Where do you feel like you're able to have the most impact? Across the entire operations? Yeah. I mean, across, you know, are there particular areas of the business yeah. that you found yourself to be sort of particularly yeah. adept? I wouldn't say adept, but I'd rather be caught dead than be in the kitchen cooking on a day-to-day basis. I mean, outside and that's perceived as glamorous and that's where the creativity is. And everybody thinks of, you know, Eureka moments and pristine chefs throwing together ingredients with joy and glee. But inside couldn't be further from that. It is as close to incarceration as you can get in any profession. You're standing on your feet for 12, 14 hours a day. It's grime, it's heat, it's complete replication day in day, right? Other than moments of innovation. I love the creation of it. I do love creating new dishes, whether it's with the team or bringing back ideas from travels or replicating cuisine from my childhood. Not only that, but the cocktails, I love the innovation and the interior, the menu, the space, the ambiance, the music, the marketing, the press, the PR. But there's also a lot of grunt behind it, whether it's permits, payroll, all of that. Some of which I outsource, but then given that right now it's just one entity, a lot of that I do myself. Right. It's one of those businesses where, as you say, there's the mystique and the glamour, but behind the scenes, you know, there's an awful lot of grunt work that's required to get it up and running and to keep it running every day. But that being said, you know, to stand out in any field is a challenge. Yeah. And I think that is my forte, if I was to nail one, which is to really help us stand above the pack, get the accolades that we did, keep us fresh and in the news for whatever reason, through whichever angles, whether it is the cuisine or the cocktails or working with the city or bringing the James Beard Foundation Awards to Chicago or boosting women or writing. So staying on top of mind is important. You've got so many things that you're up to at once. So if you're lacking for mental stimulation, I guess, in the day-to-day part of running a restaurant, you've got plenty of other things that you keep yourself busy with. You know, restaurants, it's a male-dominated industry. What was it like for you as an Indian woman breaking into that industry? Did you find it more challenging than the average person might find it? Because the restaurant business is tough in general, as you've said. I'm very fortunate. I don't think I encountered any overt sexism, racism at all. But then I'm also very fortunate because of my background, right? I'm trained financially. I don't lack confidence. I know my numbers. I can talk to lessers. I can talk to funders, financiers, owners. What I find though was in my industry, I mean, I've spoken about this so often, what I've coined as the gastro ceiling is fundamentally lower than the glass ceiling in corporations. And I saw that within clients that I worked with at McKinsey and at the World Bank. So making my dent on that has landed up being a passion, but I don't believe that I confronted any barriers, significant barriers myself, to be honest. Well, that's great. That's good to hear. You have, though, been passionate about helping other women in the industry. You started the Women's Leadership Program when you got involved with the James Beard Foundation. Talk a little bit about what sort of sparked that for you and how did you get it started? There were two things that I confronted in my industry. One is women always pick the softer side of the profession. Either they picked it or they were relegated to it. So in restaurants, that would be pastry and cold stations and never really got a chance to leave the entire kitchen and learn the inside out of costing, sourcing, HR training, all the things that you would need to know 
to mm. be an executive chef. And even a lesser fraction were entrepreneurs or raising funds externally. So while you might get the numbers that 40% of restaurants are owned by women, very few crack the million dollar mark. And it's all because of financing. So in my mind, breaking those barriers of external funding slash financial literacy and changing aspirations and confidence are the two parallel prongs that I set out to address. And with the James Beard Foundation, I met the president through a women's network, the Women's Forum of New York. We were both members. I was very familiar with the foundation being in the industry. I literally sat down with her and said, let's test a model of where we place a woman for one year with me. I'll apprentice her and let's see if we can get her to executive chef level in a year. And if we do that, let's replicate it with 30 leading restaurateurs around the country. And so that's what we did for seven years. Then we started expanding into, we started doing like a mini MBA for women called Women's Entrepreneurship Program. Then I launched something called Owning It, which was to introduce women to financiers and figure out how to raise funds. And then we scaled that across cities. So led that for 10 years. But during the pandemic, a large part of that froze. And that's when I switched gears. But up until that point, I mean, you had to have helped hundreds of women advance their careers. That's amazing. It's not just me solo. It's with the big James Beard Foundation. But yes, I was the one who was starting it, sharing it, driving it. And it was incredibly gratifying. It does take your eye away from the core. So you have to be very careful about where you spread your passion and zeal. Because it's quite easy to drop one ball when you're juggling others. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes this whole idea of a portfolio career that seems to be getting a lot of press these days, it's enticing in some ways. And I think a lot of people, particularly on the back of this great resignation that's going on, are thinking about not having a traditional career path. But those things can be mutually reinforcing of each other, or they can be just completely distractive to each other. And that's, I think, the hard part about, to your point, it's a lot of balls to be juggling at once. Along the way, you were raising two girls, regularly speaking, running marathons, triathlons, climbing mountains. How did you fit it all in? I shafted everything. (laughs) One, I married well, and my husband is as involved as I am in the house with the girls. That's our holy covenant to each other. And two, nothing is perfection, and you learn to release guilt and try and amp up on where it's needed at the right time. But yes, we're both very involved parents. Can't believe one is already out of the house and one is almost on her way out. Yeah. Well, my youngest is 25. So we're way past that point. And it's a big transition as a parent when that last child goes off to college. You climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. How was that experience for you? My daughter and I did it in 2018. For us, it was fantastic. How lovely. That's always been a dream doing it with my daughters. How old was she when she did it? She was 23. Nice. So for me, I had read a book by Michael Crichton when I was in India. I think it came out in, I can't recollect, long time ago, decades ago. It was essays on travel. And there was one chapter on Kilimanjaro. Ever since then, I really wanted to go. By the time I'm 40, I must do this. So it was literally in the nick of time. Two weeks before my 40th birthday, Sajal and I went. My husband, that was his treat to me. So no cocktail party, no none of that shenanigan. We literally trudged up. And yes, like you said, it was one of the best things we've done. Spectacular. But my goodness, that last night when you hike up the mountain and then you descend 10,000 feet, 
Yeah. That is pushing yourself beyond endurance, right? Yeah, that's a very long day. We actually didn't do it that way. We did a little bit of an alternate trek that's a little bit more expensive. We went up during the day, the last 5,000 feet or whatever, and slept in the crater that night and then hiked the 10,000 feet down the next day, which in a way was much more civilized. The downside is we barely made it up there by sunset. So it was a long day for us, despite getting a start pretty early in the morning. Fascinating. I don't think that was an option when I did it. Mine was in 2008. Yeah. And I did Machami, the whiskey route. Yeah. And a certain base point you could go up to at night and nothing about that. The crater yeah. was not an option. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it was breathtaking up there. It was obviously very cold. There was snow the year we went. So we're sleeping. It was like being in full-on winter conditions. I think the temperature got down to about five degrees Fahrenheit that night in the middle of Africa in the middle of August. It was sort of a very weird thing leaving summer in the U.S. for that. We were trekking all night. We couldn't see one foot in front of the other, literally with headlamps, and we couldn't touch or feel anything all night. It was excruciating. Yeah, I woke up that morning and saw all the headlamps going up the mountain and thought, oh, that's a tough way to do it. So I don't know, maybe another time I'll try that approach. All right, back to the career though. So you were kind of leading up to the pandemic. I think you were at tail end of remodeling Vermilion and at that time, and you ended up shutting for a period of time. So what did you do to get through? How were you able to make it to take care of your employees to kind of keep the business in a position where you could revive it when things got better? I am so impressed with your research. My goodness, <laughs> you really... Well, with you, 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 there are so many articles on you that it, it's really to pull easy. it all together. My God, you're jogging my memory. I'd forgotten <laughs> about the relaunch. It feels like a thing of the past. So here's the thing. Every time I've tried to do something with Vermilion, I've caused either a global crisis or a global pandemic. Yeah. Is, I, I'm the root cause. So I opened New York, 2008, 14,000 right. feet, the day that Lehman went belly up. I mean, the warnings were out there. And I was relaunching Vermilion beginning of Feb of 2020. It was pretty obvious. We actually closed doors Feb 1st, well before the mandate. For the first four, five months, it was just sheer agony and uncertainty because there was no relief. There was no PPP, no grants. I was trying my best to sustain the core employees and support the rest to whatever extent I could, because I had no idea how quickly I'd have to bring them back. And summer was my hope for some kind of relief, outdoor dining and what have you. Remember, there was no no vaccines at that point, not even a glimmer of anything. Even testing was out of the question. And sanitizer was hard to get. We did it though, and we reopened again in July. It was long four, five months of closure. And over the last two years, I've spent a good one-fifth of my time scrounging for finances, whether it is grants, or negotiating contracts, or talking to my lessor, all sorts of avenues to keep things going because it has not come back to normal, even remotely. Sometimes it feels very at the edge of the precipice. And sometimes I even question why continue. It's not obvious to me that there is any end in sight, to be honest, especially given the global inequity in vaccines. So yeah, it's been a very, very interesting two years. We did everything that everyone in the industry has done. All the pivots possible, takeout, products, experiences, collaborations, the gamut, and more with Let's Talk Women, but it's been rough. So you came up with that idea. Talk about how that got started. That was an offspring of the pandemic. 
So in July of 2020, when I was reopening, I reached out to eight, 10 of my women restaurateurs to try and figure out how they were thinking about opening. And literally, it was not just the logistics, but also the ethical and moral dilemma of do we even want to do this? Putting employees at risk to sell, running retail. And our industry was really not overtly helpful to us. We were getting a deluge of webinars on everything and manuals, but really not very much concrete help. This group of 10, 15 women, we just proved to be so magically helpful to each other in very practical ways Mm. beyond anything I've ever confronted in my career till date. I mean, I know I recollect going to so many conferences where I would meet them or industry forums and we would just a cursory check each other out and move on, couldn't get out of there fast enough. But this has changed the dynamic. And now in Chicago, it's a little over 50 of us All women owners of businesses, restaurants or entrepreneurs, and a total of maybe 90 restaurants amongst the group. And now it's actually 13 cities. One or two dropped out or fizzled out. And we've launched three this month. And it's 600 women restaurateurs and entrepreneurs. And I literally replicated and scaled that around the country. I have a couple of co-hosts that drive the economic collaborations and initiatives on the ground in each uh, city. But we've also done national events. We're very systematic about transferring learnings across each other. And it's just beyond anything I expected it would be. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing story. And obviously provided in another way, on top of what you were doing with the Women's Leadership Program, another great way to help women in the industry. You talked about the gastro ceiling earlier in our discussion, and you've put a ton of time into helping women in the industry. Do you feel like the industry is opening up more to women than it did when you started out 20 years ago? Yes, I do. I think it's because of the Me Too movement that the press and journalism has sat up and started giving a little more of their due. But I do still think that it's still dominated by those who are either have scale, which tends to be male restorative groups, or those who have PR dollars. And it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22. They tend to be on all the industry boards and dominate the conversations and the press. But I do think it is getting better. And long way to go, though, if you were to just look at the economics and stats around it. Yeah, I think most industries have a gender pay gap. And a lot of industries are tougher for women than they are for men. And the restaurant industry, I'm not surprised to hear what you're saying, particularly given that it tends to be as you say, such a male-dominated industry that the big chains are all typically led by men. Okay, looking back over this whole time from the age of 13 to today, you've had a bunch of different careers and done a number of things in parallel. Was there a point in time where you kind of felt like, okay, I get me, I know what I want to do, I know how I want to spend my professional time? Did you hit that point in any kind of aha moment? You know, that's such a trick question, JR. I don't think so. Because then I wouldn't have had these four career changes. I started off in academia, then the World Bank, Segway, McKinsey, and now entrepreneurship. And I still quite often question, what's my next chapter? I can't discern if it's because of a desire for renewal and challenge and aiming for more, aspiring for more, or whether it is a sign of waning interest or being fickle or not sticking with it enough. I really can't decide which it is. Am I committed to being an entrepreneur forever? I don't know. Well, there's that policy wonk, I suspect. I haven't grown up yet. (laughs) Let's put it that way. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, some people feel like they never really grow up and they never really know what they want to do. And they're always thinking, 
all have another career. And to me, that's great. I think thinking that way keeps you young, right? It's a way of looking forward that isn't just about, oh, I'm going to do this until I retire. And then I'm going to go do a traditional retirement. So I think it's fantastic. I could be convinced either way. I've seen people stick with one thing and do it brilliantly and reach spaces that you couldn't dream of, right? But then I've also seen people go and learn a lot and change careers. I've seen people who change careers a lot and flail, drop off their trajectory. But that can happen even within one job. So this is a longer discussion. (laughs) Well, there's no one right answer, right? And and I think it's funny because I work with this group of career coaches And we have a bit of a debate about this sort of option B thing. And because they feel like too many of the people that they coach always feel like the grass is green or someplace else. And then they leave a good thing and they move on and they're not as happy where they go and they should have stayed where they were. You know, I've always kind of looked at it from the perspective of you should at least have a backup plan because a lot of things go on in the world that you can't control, right? pandemics and layoffs and things like that. But I'm sure there's some truth to the fact that people jump when they shouldn't have jumped. So far, you've had four different things and you've done pretty well at all. There's something to be said for that. I'll let you be the judge of that because (laughs) I have my own standards, but thank you. (laughs) I take compliment. Fair enough. Are there strengths that you feel like you've drawn on again and again over the course of your different careers? Yes. I do think that I'm incredibly perseverant or call it just dogged, I will not take a no. I will find ways to solve around it until and unless I hit an absolutely overt impasse. So I'm very, very solution-oriented. I am an optimist. And so even at the worst of times, I will figure out ways to do things to make myself feel better and get to the next step and drive through things. And I think that and problem solving are my strengths. What have you focused on developing along the way? And how did you go about that? A nice way of asking, what are your weaknesses? (laughs) So much. I think I micromanage too much. I just I need to invest more in coaching people and delegating rather than just taking over. Yeah. I need to be much more strategic about my time. I need to set much better goals in terms of timelines and scales and stick to that and not divert myself with the next best thing I find interesting. I am not a people person. I never was. I can fake it for for professional purposes, but that's not a plus when you're in the hospitality industry. So the one place you won't find me is on the floor having drinks with guests or mingling with guests. I mean, I did that for a couple of years. It grew old really fast. So I outsourced that. And I think that's fine. It's not a strength and I can outsource it. So why not? So yeah, there's a lot that I do outsource because I'm not good at it. Yeah. You don't have to be good at everything. You need to understand your strengths and understand things you're not so good at and find other people who can compliment you and bring those to bear that in a way that you can't. Obviously, you have to have built this network up over the years, involvement with the James Beard Foundation, all the things you've done in Chicago. Let's talk women and the network you've built there. How do you use the network today to help you do what you're trying to do? That's a fantastic question. And I haven't gotten to that point yet. I'm actually trying to figure that out. I'm actually very energized with Let's Talk Women. And we have a whole pipeline of initiatives that we want to work on for the year that go beyond collaborations in food and Mm. speak to a lot of larger entrepreneurial undertakings. So enthused about that, I'm actually tapping into my network of corporations and sponsors and women to try and make things come together. So I think there could be some interesting folks ahead. 
scaling vermilion would be the easy thing to do i don't even know at this point juncture if i really want to do it because it, it is extremely time consuming and unless i go to a fast casual format just doing the fine dining over and over again it is it's very time consuming i'm very enthused about the entrepreneurial directions that we're going in with let's talk women and let's see what happens including international women's day plans which are can i just divert for a minute to share absolutely <laughs> So McKinsey is helping us with a pro bono study to craft the Let's Talk Women Summit in March 1st and we're reaching out to incredible speakers. I won't divulge their name but beyond and the crafting content for women to revolutionize change doing a panel with male allies. Again, Jose Andres has said yes and so many others. That's going to be exciting. We're running celebratory dinners with the official city tourism partners in all 13 of our cities. So we'll own the day. So I think it will really amp up our visibility and give us more of a growth platform to work off of. Are there personal values that have really shaped how you've made your career choices and how you lead in your restaurant and the other things you do? I don't know how to answer that. Give me an example of what you'd say for yourself. Let me maybe play back what you've talked about, just the importance that you put on development in different parts of the world. I mean, does that shape the way that you think about how you've spent your time? I mean, clearly you write on that topic. You've written, you know, a number of op-ed pieces over the years. Are there other things that are like that, that really kind of shape who you are and how you kind of wake up and go about things during the day? I think a lot of me is, comes from the fact that I grew up in India. and now i almost consider myself an ambassador of my culture here i also consider myself a very privileged ambassador of my gender those are two things i cannot put aside as i operate on a normal day to day basis which is the reason that i'm doing the indian cuisine if i was asked to do rustic italian tomorrow and promised to f- five times the revenue i would not do it i would rather do something else and for me global equity and global policy is really really important but that doesn't really enter my day to day work life it's just a passion so i don't know what to say here i have to think about this and email you back on the personal values but yeah. you're not giving me a clear cut answer either because i asked you how would you answer this for yourself you know i think what i would say i mean i've always come to doing what i'm doing with the view that i'm trying to make a place better than i came into it and whether it's the people or the systems or whatever and over time for me it's gotten more important that you leave people in a better place than what you inherited because at the end of the day we're all just people trying to do our jobs every day no matter what our station is in life so For me that's something that's become more important to me over the years as I've sort of lived life's experiences and had ups and downs like everybody else. You know, but just even listening to what you were saying a minute ago, just an ambassador of your culture and your gender and you do bring that. I mean, that's what your restaurant is about in the Indian cuisine and think about all the things you're doing to help women. I mean, you say your day-to-day isn't really so much about global equity, but at the same time you're just talking about let's talk women going international. So I think I would disagree with you a little bit. I think it actually is more in your day-to-day than you're giving yourself credit for. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. You have said that you have to be your own best self-advocate. Talk more about what you mean and whether you think that applies more so to women and people of color. I won't speak for people of color but definitely women. Yeah. Definitely. I think the ability to be seen, to be heard, to ask to make sure your you get credit for your ideas to ask for funding to ask for promotions just that whole ask for allies leverage help it's all about self advocacy and if there's one thing as parents we should instill in our daughters it is that yeah. give them the confidence and the skill set to 
really speak up at all points. And so this whole disparity between, I'm hoping it'll change, but I really don't see it because I see my daughters in private school and their peers and this and that. It's still much of the same. You know, there's girls are still taught to be attractive and cool, and but not to be strong, fierce leaders. And I would love a way to fundamentally transform that. I think in one generation, we could change the map of where women are and all progress if all parents were to change their approach to parenting. Maybe that will be the fifth career for you to change the way parents parent. It is true. I mean, you hear these stories about how men will go into an interview and they'll BS their way through all of it. Oh yeah, I can do that. And women will come up with all the reasons why they don't think they're qualified. They won't even apply for the job, even if they happen to have relevant skills. And it's just, you know, to me, it's things like that, that we've just, we've got to completely reset the way people think about things to have the kind of impact that you're describing. And there's a lot of, lot of psychiatric and other studies to back this so much. There is no easy fix to this. A lot of it is just so deeply ingrained in the way that our social structures work. It is a muscle. It is. If you tell yourself today, I will do three asks. I don't care what they are. Small, big, small, just do it. Get out there, pick up the phone. And and over time, you just inure yourself to being much better at it and confident in yourself. What's the worst that can happen? A no. But if you don't ask, you'll get nothing, right? That's a guaranteed no. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. If you had, looking back on what you've done to date, if you had to do something differently, would you done something differently along the way or you happy with the ride as it's been? I would have done everything differently. I would have been a much more impactful person in global policy. That still is my first love. I would mm. have loved to be truly either deeply effective in politics or leading an international institution or some kind of massive multilateral thing or diplomacy or foreign policy. That is my calling. And who knows? Like I said, I've not ruled anything out. But yeah, I would have done things very differently. And hindsight is not, not, but it's fantasy, right? So uh, why not imagine different paths for yourself? I'd love to meet the one person who says, oh my God, no, I got it all down to perfection. Anybody who thinks that is deluding themselves. That's just not possible, right? That being said, when you think about the people who really transformed this planet, it'd be interesting to know how they would have done things differently. Yeah. It, what's interesting, though, is the people who really transform this planet, they still have their ups and downs and yeah. all the things they say and they do that they regret later. And it's part of what makes us all human, I guess, right? Are there other career lessons that you would want our listeners or viewers to take away from today? I do think investing in yourself upfront is very important because I know that with the gig economy and all, there's a whole cadre of people who think that, let me just jump into being an entrepreneur or carving my own way. But in my case, having the background of McKinsey and my educational credentials proved to be immensely invaluable. I happened to go into restaurants, but I could have taken on anything else because of that training and the brand. So I think having that is very key. Yeah. Michael Alter from the Chicago office of McKinsey was one of my other guests so far. And he describes the HBS background that he had in working at McKinsey as his grade A union card that gets you in anywhere. And there's certainly some truth to that. I know Michael is a good friend. His wife, Sarah, is too. I work with her quite a bit with New and Let's Talk. Have you done her podcast yet? I have not. She has not invited me. (laughs) Oh, we'll have to change that. I hear she's growing a really good subscriber base. Michael told me when we talked, she had something like 25,000 subscribers, which is fantastic. That's amazing. Good for her. All right. Any final thoughts to share? 
Not really, JR. I'm intrigued to see where your podcasts go and I wish you all the success and anything that I can do to help you spread it or share the word or anything. Just say that. When your episode's ready, I will definitely look to you to spread it with your network and will help bring some light to some of the things that you're doing as well. So for me, that's what this is really about. You know, I'm sort of drawing a story out of people, but ultimately want to let them kind of have the stage and tell their story. All right. Well, again, thank you. That wraps up this episode of Career Sessions. I'd like to thank my guest, Rahini Day, for joining me today, sharing her amazing career story and learnings. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.